0: Reading today uh, from Revelation chapter 2,
1: reading from verse 1 through uh, 7. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, uh, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent." But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. The first letter is addressed to the church in Ephesus. And we see in this first letter... That the idea of overcoming is presented to us. Look at verse number seven. It says, To him that overcometh. Now, this idea of overcoming recurs in the Lord's words to the churches. In fact, the word that is used here in verse number seven occurs in Revelation more than 50% of the times the word is used in the entire New Testament. It's also translated with the word to conquer. So you've got chapter 6 and the verse number 2. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, a crime was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. So this word to overcome has a, it's got a military thought behind it. It's a thought of victory, of conquering, of conquest. Hence the overcomers, the one that overcomes, verse 7, Those overcomers are those who know victory in battle. They overcome the trials of a fallen world, living as a soldier of the cross in the midst of a hostile environment. They are those who know what it is to overcome the enemies of God, sin and Satan and all of Satan's forces. Oh, how relevant this is. To the readers of these first-century churches, they were those who were suffering under the persecuting hand of Domitian. Um, What an encouragement it is to know that they could indeed be an overcomer. Now, there are various promises given to the overcomers. Here, the Ephesians are told that they will eat of the tree of life. Verse 7, to him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God's. Of course, anybody with some Bible knowledge will, will see in that reference a uh, uh, falling back to the concept of Eden and the time when man fell and was driven from the garden. We know that one of the outcomes of the fall was that man was driven from the garden, and as Genesis 3 verse 24 says, to keep the way of the tree of life that it was not the Lord's will or purpose that Adam had put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat, and as Genesis 3 says, and live forever. The tree of life offered life, eternal life, but that could not be Adam's portion. For the redemption of mankind, a second Adam must come and die. And so for Adam to live in a fallen state would prevent the work of redemption. And so it was necessary for Adam to die and need a second Adam to come of our humanity and die that we will then take the tree of life. There's a lot of profound uh, theology in some of those concepts, but the idea is that after Christ's coming and dying on another tree, we then have access to the tree of life whereby we will live and never ever die. It's a reference, of course, to eternal life in the new creation, the new heavens, the new earth. Wherein dwelleth righteousness. And so the promise to the overcomers is eternal life. And what that suggests to us, again, is that every single believer must be an overcomer. That the tree of life is only offered to those who overcome. Now, they do so by grace, they do so through the work of God in their souls, but every child of God who will then know eternal life must be an overcomer. And so, when you think about these believers and they're being encouraged to overcome, well, we see what overcoming looks like. And we see it in all of the letters. What does overcoming look like? Well, the letters bring a mixture of commendation and correction. And for some of the churches, it's heavy in commendation. For others, it's heavy on correction. But there's a mixture of commendation and correction. And so overcoming, well, it looks like the behavior that is commended. What does it look like to be an overcomer? Well, look at the good things the Lord commends the churches for. And of course, what does it not look like if you're an overcomer? Well, that's the behavior that is rebuked. It's not overcoming if you persist in those behaviors. And so you'll see, even in this time, this very verse, there's a warning that if they do not repent, the Lord will remove the candlestick out of his place. And so there are warnings here. And so for this church, here in Ephesus, I'm going to look at this letter under that theme of what does it look like to be an overcomer? There are three things that come to the fore in this letter regarding overcoming. First of all, overcoming involves endurance. It involves endurance. Verse number 2, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience. Verse number 3 also, and hast borne and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. Here we're seeing the Lord commending the church's labor, a labor that endures, a labor that is, not a fainting labor succumbing to weariness. Every believer is created in Christ Jesus unto good works. They are prepared beforehand for us to walk in. There's a, a work for us to do for the Lord. And so when the church comes together, that church is a work to do for God. But the temptation to weariness is real. Living in a hostile world as a soldier of the cross, the temptation to weariness is very, very genuine. You go back to Galatians chapter 6, and you remember there, Paul Paul highlights the danger of weariness in Galatians chapter 6 verse number 7, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall the flesh reap corruption. And he that soweth to the Spirit shall the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing. For in due season we shall reap if we faint not. So there's a a reaping of eternal life for those who persist and do not faint in well-doing. Some of that well-doing, verse number 10. And as we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. There's a work to do for the Lord. And the enemy, the enemy in this world will set out to stop the work. Remember Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel. Remember those men and how the enemy is coming upon them and their, their sole purpose is to stop the work to stop the work of God. And we live in similar days. The enemy is still at work in this world seeking to stop the work of the church. And tragically, the enemy is often successful. We, we grow weary. We grow heavy-hearted in the work. We get discouraged. We see the obstacles. We see all the rubble around the walls like Nehemiah. And we wonder, how can we lift these things and move forward? And the church is too quick to stop work. Quickly putting down their tools. And so we must overcome. Our work is the building of the kingdom. It is our task to go and seek out stones, stones that are out there, that are dead. And there's a the task of the church to, to find those stones and to, to bring them to Christ, whereby they are added to the living church and they become living stones, dead stones made alive in Christ Jesus. But it's part of the purpose of the church to, to go and lift those stones and bring them in. It's our task to lift and carry in the power of God's. Well, we do so as we labor in prayer for the building. We, we can't put down the tools of prayer. We've got to, we've got to not be weary in well-doing. and well-doing. If you like, as we pray together, the, the cement is put in place and the, the structure goes up around us and living stones are at right the Christ church. We teach the word to a new generation. The boys and girls, the young people around us, we, we are duty-bound to pass on the baton of Bible truth. That's part of the work of the church in building the kingdom, all of these things. And of course, we care for the work of the kingdom. We seek to protect and provide for and care for each other, nurturing each other, that the enemies come and they begin to, to lift up the pick, if you like, and chip away at the stone, that we get there and we protect those stones for the well-being of the kingdom of Christ. And you get the imagery. We're in a battle, we're in a war, and yet we're involved in building. We are, we are like people in Nehemiah's day, the sword and the trial. The task of fighting the enemy at the same time as building in the work of God—that's what it is to overcome, and to do so involves endurance, not giving up, not growing weary in our, in our well-doing, not fainting. That's what it says here. For my name's sake, has laboured. They've got the right motivation—the glory of Christ's name—and therefore they have not fainted. I think there's a very strong connection there. We will faint if we're doing this work in our own strength. But when we work for the glory of Christ's name, then we do not faint. And so overcoming involves endurance. Secondly, overcoming involves intolerance. Christian intolerance. You mentioned that in the modern politically correct culture, and they'll wonder what you're talking about. Surely, really the only thing that's required is tolerance. But no, the Lord commends the Ephesian church here for their intolerance. Look at verse number two and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. This is clearly not describing their compassion for lost souls outside the church. Christ is very clear in his instructions and his prayers to the church in John that they are to be in the world that they are to be salt and light in the world. They're not to cut themselves off and say, I can't stand the world. No, we hate the sin, but we we have a compassion for those who are trapped in sin. What's involved here is an intolerance of sin in the church. They will not bear with evil in the church of Christ. Ties to this, they will not bear with false teachers. There were those who said they were apostles and are not. And what did they do? They found them liars. It implies discipline. It implies discretion and examination. It describes this idea of, of the church being faithful in seeking out those who are teaching falsehoods and removing them from the midst of the church. The Nicolaitans are mentioned in verse number 6. Again, you see, this is not a compromising church. And thou hast, and this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans which I also hate. The Nicolaitans likely were those who compromised with the world by teaching that they had some superior light that gave them the freedom, the liberty to practice immorality and idolatry without sinning. This is a church that hates what Christ hates and loves what Christ loves. Clearly, we see a church that is wise in their discernments and faithful in their discipline, Now, before we go any further, you will note the nevertheless in verse number 4. And we'll come to this matter of the rebuke that Christ gives. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. And there are some, and they misunderstand this. And they may say, well, if they were still in their first love, they would be more tolerant. You see how that can be twisted. But the Lord is commending their intolerance. And so you should not draw a false connection between those two ideas. That Well, if they're more loving, they'd be more tolerant. No, it is because they are loving in some sense. There's a a defect here, but they have love in some sense that they hate that which is evil. And so they are properly intolerant. They call sin, sin, and they put sin out of the church. And so God, Christ, commends them for that, I think it's encouraging when you think about how this church in Ephesus, the leaders were given warnings by Paul, weren't they, in Acts chapter 20? He warned them of the grievous wolves that will come to seek to destroy and enter among you, not sparing the flock. It's good when the church leaders heeded the warnings of Paul. Please pray for church leaders today that they would heed the warnings of Paul. They'd heed the warnings to be always alert and vigilant And so overcoming, well, it understands that Christ saves from sin, and so overcomers flee and fight falsehood morally and doctrinally. Overcoming the third place, though, and here we must come to verse number four, it implies repentance. An overcomer is willing to repent. There's a sense here, unless except thou repent, verse number five, to him that overcometh, verse number 7, the idea being that the one who overcomes is one who will repent of their sins. At times, sin comes in upon us. And for the Ephesians to overcome, they had to repent. Overcoming meant that they had to identify their sin. Or perhaps more likely, it involved them having the humility to hear the rebuke of Christ and accept that as a word from Christ. Not to be defensive or resistant but the Lord putting his finger on their sin. And what a sin it is. Verse number four, because thou hast left thy first love. This reference to the first love, I believe, refers to Christ as the bridegroom. The wedding imagery that's used for Christ and his church is being drawn on here. And the idea here is that they have left the one, not lost, but left to some degree, they have left their affection for their bridegroom, Christ himself. This is often applied in a very personal way, individually to believers. Our heart belongs to Christ. We love because he first loved us. And there is the reality for many when they're first drawn to Christ that their their heart overwhelms with love and thankfulness and, and coldness and dullness can step in. This is a very real experience. We have competing affections. We live in the world and we find ourselves wrestling for other things that would would crowd in upon our hearts and seek to draw us from our Savior. More often than not, the issue is carelessness. We take the Lord for granted. We take the place of prayer for granted. We take the Word of God for granted. We We take our Savior for granted and we grow cold in our affections. Oh these are these are heartbreaking words remember these are the words of the groom speaking to the bride saying you have left me and yet whilst there is undoubtedly application in a very individual sense the lord here is speaking to the church collectively among whom there would have been faithful believers they were vibrant and walking with the lord This is not, I believe, a case that every single person in the church is guilty of this. This is a collective rebuke, describing the church's personality and actions at this time. I remember when I was called to the first church I pastored, a senior minister, he came to me and said, you know, brother, churches of personalities— He's really anthropomorphizing the church and giving the characteristics of a person. But it's true there's a there's a spirit and a climate that occupies the church, and there'll be there'll be people in the fringes in different areas, but there's still the the church can be described as a collective, and so it is here. This church was greatly privileged. Do you know who all served and ministered in this church? I hear the list of the men that served in ministry, well and women, because Priscilla and Aquila were involved in Ephesus for a season. Paul, three times, once for more than three years. Tychicus, Timothy, and the Apostle John. Jerome tells the story of John at an old age, couldn't walk, and was carried into the church, and said to the church, "Love one another." This is a greatly privileged church with a ministry of apostolic, Christ-centered preaching. And yet, when these words come to them in Revelation chapter 2, it is more than 40 years old as a church. Probably about the length of time this church has been going. It's about a 40-plus-year-old church. When Christ brings this epistle, another generation has arisen. And it seems likely the children did not experience the intense enthusiasm that their forefathers had. Let me read to you some of the words of Hendrickson. He says this, The children did not experience that intense enthusiasm, that spontaneity and ardor which had been revealed by their parents when the latter first came into contact with the gospel. Not only this, but they lacked their former devotion to Christ, A similar condition occurred in Israel after the days of Joshua and the elders. The church had departed from their first love. He's describing the church collectively here. That a generation has risen that does not have the passion and the zeal and the ardor of those that were involved in the foundation of the church. The application is very obvious. This privileged church, though, was marked by purity. We've seen that already. There was doctrinal and moral purity. They were, they were scrupulous in so many ways. So, this leaving their first love is it's not worldliness or doctrinal errors. They were intolerant of evil and false teaching. So, yes, a church may leave Christ by embracing worldliness and false teaching, but that wasn't the case here. They were marked by purity. They were marked by their practice. They were a working church. They're commended for their work and for their labor. They're active and busy. Lots of meetings, as to speculate. Lots of meetings, lots of evangelism, all manner of things happening. So, leaving their first love does not mean a diminishing of their activity. Well, that could be the case as well. You can drop off your activity as a sign of leaving Christ. No, the peril of this church, the danger that this church faced was they would no longer be a church. That's the warning. Repent. Do the first works, or else I will come to thee quickly and remove that candlestick out of this place. It was that they would cease to be a local church of Christ. So what was their problem? If it's not doctrinal compromise, if it's not worldliness, if it's not laziness, Well, then, what is it? All those things that we look upon and say, well, there's a church that's apostatized. There's a church that's left their first love. Worldly, false doctrine, no activity. That's not this church. So, what you see here is really very clearly an absence of gospel emotion and proper gospel affection. I believe we know these things in our souls. We know seasons individually when that has been the case. Where once we burned with affection for Christ, now our hearts are troubled by coldness. This leaving their first love in a church that's orthodox, a separate witness is displayed. This leaving is displayed by cold affections and dullness under preaching. When Christ is preached, and precious truths are expounded, are familiar, they do not tend to ignite the hearts of the church. You ones and twos. But as a collective body, there's a, a lack of impact in the preach of Christ. There's dullness and praise. Words and music are used, but there is no heart. And so, what we tend to do is we we want to pick lively hymns with vibrant music because we we understand we ought to feel something, but we don't feel it just from the truth. We've got to use the music to help us feel it. That's a major problem. That the truth itself in the hymns does not ignite our hearts. I'm not suggesting for a second that it's wrong to have a lively tune, but if you depend upon the tune for the emotions, there's a big problem. Dullness in preaching, dullness in praise, dullness in prayer. We offer prayers, we offer the words, but you know, you know in your heart, there's just not the vibrancy in the prayer times. We're just going through the motions. And so churches, second-generation churches, can very quickly leave their first love. It's not like going into a room and turning off the light switch. It happens gradually, little by little. And it happens from one person here and another person there. And little by little, the spirit of the age infects the entire body. And then you're in the path to final apostasy and the candlestick being taken out of its place. This is a serious, serious letter. And the duty is, therefore, verse 5, remember, 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 don't forget the past. Don't forget the affection you had for Christ. Don't, don't, don't put that back and say, well, that was an unusual time of blessing. Long, long that your heart will be there again. And you can't turn back time, but you can have previous blessings renewed today. You want that, don't you? You don't want to go through your life without any affection for Christ. Christian religion is an emotional religion. We love our Lord. We love Him. So, we must repent. Do those first works, those fundamentals of Christian living. Read your Bible and pray every day getting before God, trying to see Christ in the word, longing to see more of him, more of him as you sing, more of him as you pray, more of him as you read, more of him as you listen to the preaching of the word. We want to see more and more of our Savior because if we lose and we leave or if we leave our first love, then we are going to be undone as a church. And so may the Lord write his word upon our hearts. This church has much to commend it, but it's on the slippery slope to ruin unless it repents. And let's be honest, we may well be in the same slope unless the grace of God comes in and reignites our heart with love for Christ.